Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 111, The Era of Subway Graffiti. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a yet another solo podcast looking nostalgically upon a group of disaffected youth breaking the law. But unlike the Wyos and the Pirates of the East River and the other gangs that we've discussed here on the show, instead of murder and evil, today's subject, the graffiti writers of New York City during the 1970s and 1980s, well, one of their intents was simply fame through the creation of artwork. Street graffiti, evolving from magic marker scrawls to huge, elaborate, and beautifully colored pieces, these defined the look of the city in the 1970s, livening up a town that had grown a bit dull. But of course, was this art or was it vandalism? It's actually a little bit of both, and I don't think either side would deny that. In one corner, you have an underground scene of graffiti artists or writers developing a new art form on the sides and surfaces of every conceivable public space in New York and eyeing the ultimate prize, a clean writing surface that moves, a.k.a. the subway cars of New York City. In the other corner is the city of New York and the Metropolitan Transit Authority, or MTA, decimated by a financial crisis, and five steps behind in their efforts to keep the subways clean, desperately trying to organize an effort to erase graffiti forever. In an era when graffiti was beginning to be taken seriously by galleries and the press, and individuals within the graffiti scene were becoming world-renowned figures. So I'll tell you that story, and of course, since this is the Bowery Boys, we've got to go back to five points. But not, of course, that wretched slum of yore in Lower Manhattan, but actually a cluster of formerly abandoned buildings in Long Island City, Queens, a place that's become a partial solution to the conundrum facing many graffiti writers between legitimacy and breaking the law. So join me as we go back in the day, back to the golden age of subway graffiti.
that song, of course, was from the movie Beat Street, uh, which came out, I believe, in 1984 and features graffiti writers prominently in the storyline. Iffy movie, but a great soundtrack. Now, I'm not even going to begin to track down the very first instance that somebody in New York City decided to scrawl something out of anger or insanity upon a wall of the building. Although, I'll bet that first time had something to do with nasty British interlopers. All the graffiti back then in the early days of New York was politically oriented. In 1773, the city of New York, which was already by that time being ripped apart by pro-British and anti-British proponents, passed an anti-graffiti law, yes, all the way back in 1773, because it seems the city just couldn't keep that old equestrian statue of King George, which was down in Bowling Green. They just couldn't keep it free of offensive language that kept getting scrawled upon the horse's buttocks. We're going to zoom past all the highly charged political scrawlings of the Civil War and all the political rest of the 19th century to get to the 20th century, and specifically to that odd-scratching Kilroy was here, a popular but rather vague message that was written all across the country, of course. I think we've all heard of this one. And throughout the city, most notably, of course, written very large upon the George Washington Bridge. When the jazz great Charlie Parker died in March of 1955, a group of beatniks and jazz lovers led by bohemian poet Ted Jones expressed their mourning in a very unique way by writing the phrase bird lives all throughout the city. But these were all, of course, you know, political or honorary and essentially anonymous messages or scrawlings that weren't in any way to be connected back to an identity. However, a new form of graffiti was taking shape. It would start in the form of tagging, essentially a mark that would be written in black marker and would usually be a representation of a person's name. I mean, of course, people do this kind of thing all the time, you know, initials on a tree or in a bathroom stall or whatever. But as it began popping up in the late 60s, it actually morphed into something a little bit different, something kind of like branding a mark, stylized, recognizable, and omnipresent. The first kind of this marker graffiti appeared in Philadelphia in the 1960s, but soon wound up here in New York. Naturally, of course, it started with kids writing stuff on their block, then on a few blocks away, and then throughout their whole neighborhood. In some cases, the markings were related to gang activity, but just as frequently, even in these early days, it would be just individuals making a name for themselves, and with this barrage of initials, these monograms and marker, well, the writers would get a little bit of street fame, you know, at least in their neighborhoods. In 1969, people living in the neighborhood of Inwood, for instance, saw the phrase Julio 204 written on everything. A few months later, Washington Heights residents began seeing a similar scrawl in their neighborhood. And this little tag began following them, appearing down in midtown subway tunnels on light poles. Today, we might consider this to be a viral ad campaign, seeing the same phrase out of the corner of your eye in unexpected places throughout the city. Back then, it was considered the first tags to cross into several different neighborhoods. The phrase that everyone saw then was Taki-183. That's T-A-K-I-183. So who was this mysterious Taki-183? Well, New Yorkers found out on July 21st, 1971, which turns out to be perhaps the most important date in graffiti history. This was the date of a New York Times article with the headline, Taki-183 Spawns Pen Pals, an article that revealed the hand behind these ubiquitous tags a 17-year-old Greek high school student who lived in Washington Heights. Taki, T-A-K-I, was actually a nickname derived from his name Demetrius or Dimitaki, and the 183 gave his address on 183rd Street. 
As the city rumbled on, paying no attention, Taki, working as a bike messenger, would leave his tag on every conceivable surface throughout the city, even on ice cream trucks, and once actually on a vehicle owned by the president's secret service. But why exactly? Like, why was he interested in doing this? Not much insight from the article, I have to say, where he simply said, quote, to pass the time. You don't do it for girls. They don't seem to care. You do it for yourself, unquote. But by July of 1971, dozens of kids, mostly in the Bronx and Upper Manhattan, but soon it was catching on in Brooklyn as well, well, they all started emulating the examples of Julio 204 and Taki 183, pairing names with numbers, leaving magic marker calling cards everywhere. Cowboy 60, Pearl 74, Babyface 86, Super Cool 223, dozens and dozens of these names. It was already competition for many, you know, like one-upmanship and a game to see who could make the most marks throughout the city. And now there was an actual tangible mark of success, fame in the form of a newspaper article. Naturally, if you wanted to get your name out and fame and prestige were your objects, a stationary wall or a lamppost isn't really going to help you much, which is why the subway became the most desired canvas for these early graffiti writers. By 1971, the insides of train cars would already be littered with a cacophony of different tags. That fateful article foreshadowed the huge headache that lay in store for the city, quoting an MTA official who claimed that it cost $300,000 in a single year to keep the trains clean. The city would spend many, many millions more in the years to come, money the city could not obviously afford in the 1970s. New York was, of course... A mess in this period, in the throes of near bankruptcy, suffering from urban blight, growing developing slums, and increased crime rates. This explosion, this mess of graffiti, was a visual representation of the deterioration of the city itself. At least that's what most New Yorkers thought at the time. And it was about to get worse. To attract more attention, to outdo the other people who were making these tags, graffiti writers needed to come up with bolder looks and designs pieces became bigger and more colorful thanks to aerosol spray paint. Oh, little did the inventor of spray paint know what a monster he would create with this, by the way. Spray paint allowed for great innovation, but because of the smell, it couldn't safely be used on the inside of trains, so riders went to the outside of trains, where their handiwork could literally be carried from neighborhood to neighborhood. Styles really quickly evolved by this point. I mean, why do regular letters when you could do block letters? And then two colors of paint, and why not make your own fonts with specialized lettering? And then why not add some special effects like polka dots, clouds, stripes, flames, 3D effects? All of that innovation, of course, required more room, and so these pieces became larger. Works that eventually ran along the lengths of the cars, these types would be called masterpieces, and from the tops of the cars down to the bottom edge. And eventually, along the lengths of several trains, these epic works that would be referred to as blockbusters. By the mid-70s, this didn't look so much like graffiti anymore, but rather like gigantic works of art, these great murals on the side of subway cars. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, 
a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Now, most of this work was at first done by young men, often black, Puerto Rican, or from other immigrant families from poorer neighborhoods. However, as this caught on, it crossed gender lines. There would be female graffiti writers like Barbara 62 and Charmin 65, and would, of course, even cross class lines. An early creative one in 1972 was a rich 14-year-old blonde kid by the name of Link, who tagged several subway cars on his own until he and his family moved to Westchester County in 1974. Now, the names of the creators of these strange and evolving works would be quite known to other graffiti writers and often to most commuters if they were successful enough. Some of the names like Phase 2 and Blade, Wasp, All Jive. Artists like Cliff159 used cartoon characters. Others likely thought of subway sides like the Sistine Chapel, creating these massive narrative works along several cars. Tracy 168 is generally considered the creator of the wild style, which took the traditional letterwork and distorted and abstracted it. Essentially today, if you see a piece with lettering that's so twisted that you can't even read it, that's the wild style. Fonts that have gone completely mentally insane. By the way, can I just tell you how happy I am to be talking about fonts that I finally got into a podcast where I can talk about fonts. When we talk about the old gangs of the 19th century, it's all murder and robbery and stale beer dives. Here it's fonts and graphic design. And yes, okay, trespassing and destruction of public property. Not that there wasn't any danger involved here either. First, these graffiti writers had to get to the trains, which was done by either breaking into a train yard overnight or attacking the trains that were laid up on unused train tracks. On top of the dangers of the actual yard that electrified Third Rail, some graffiti was still associated with gang activity, and crossing into enemy territory was never a good plan. Then, of course, the work itself was always in danger of being written over by rivals. An elaborate piece could be ruined in seconds with just a few sprays of paint. This was, of course, a great offense in the graffiti community, obviously. And, of course, the risk and capture of arrest by the cops was very real. The punishments, though, actually at first were relatively light, with the perpetrators often forced to do time by cleaning the cars. Somebody had to do it. For most of the 1970s, the MTA and the city were not very successful in combating the mounds of graffiti being plastered upon these slowly disintegrating train cars. Vigorous chemical cleaning, called buffing, managed to scrape off the subway car's original paint job, somehow leaving much of the graffiti still intact. When they took these red-colored cars out of service and replaced them with silver-colored cars, well, the graffiti community stood up and applauded, because now they could really paint in color. John Lindsay was married during the initial onset of graffiti attacks upon the subway, and responded with a fairly ineffective graffiti task force in 1972. 
The next mayor, a beam, followed with equally limp enforcement methods. In fact, many graffiti artists themselves were actually annoyed with the city's lack of success. The writers needed new surfaces to paint on, and if the city couldn't clean up the old graffiti, there would be no room to paint new pieces. Truly absurd. But something else was happening here that changed certain notions of how destructive graffiti really was. Early on, groups of graffiti artists formed small clubs to provide support for each other and work together to create larger works. Groups like the X Vandals and the Fabulous Five. Evolving from those would be larger organizations like the United Graffiti Artists, or the UGA, which began fronting to the legitimate art world. In 1973, graffiti artists appeared on stage in a modern dance performance by Twyla Tharp. Soho galleries began looking at graffiti work seriously, as did mainstream magazines and newspapers. In the late 1970s, the tag SAMO, S-A-M-O, began appearing throughout Lower Manhattan. Within a couple years, its creator Jean-Michel Basquiat would become the toast of the art world, as would another muralist and graffiti artist, Keith Haring. Downtown galleries like Patty Astor's FUN Fun Gallery offered a lot of young artists a way to make money and a step towards legitimacy, though of course many artists considered gallery work selling out, because making money, who needs it? As something underground and illicit in very New York, graffiti would naturally gain associations with other cultural movements that were coming out of the city during the 1970s. Now, I mentioned earlier the Fabulous Five as one of these pivotal graffiti clubs of the era. One of the members, Fab Five Freddy, also dabbled in the new sounds of rap music and was one of many artists that introduced it to the hip downtown New York scene, working with musicians like Deborah Harry. Graffiti was the early visual of hip-hop by the early 1980s, and the two would be intertwined in album covers and films like the low-budget but very groundbreaking film Wild Style, which actually starred many working graffiti artists of the day. By the early 1980s, graffiti might have still been a sore to most New Yorkers, but some were coming around to appreciating it. The tourists certainly did who came to New York at the time, especially the European ones. But one specific New Yorker absolutely hated it, or at least had to politically. This would, of course, be the new mayor, Ed Koch, mayor of New York City from 1978 to 1989. Koch declared war, making it one of his central missions to literally scrub the city clean of graffiti. And essentially, he did it. Almost. Said the mayor, quote, I have always believed that graffiti has an adverse impact on everything that we have going on in the subways, and it adds to the oppression, unquote. And perhaps even more illuminating, he added in another interview, quote, In this period of intense competition between cities and regions for corporate investments, we simply cannot allow this type of vandalism to continue to label New York City as a blighted town, unquote. He launched a high-profile public campaign against graffiti, employing television commercials with sports and television stars, and even coining such corny slogans as, Make your mark in society, not on society. Behind the scenes, he authorized anti-graffiti vandal squads with the toughest powers yet to combat and prevent vandalism. Security at train yards beefed up with barbed wire fences and greater security, even attack dogs. Those caught painting were given stiff punishment and sent to Rikers. As a result, by the mid-80s, graffiti writers moved on to safer destinations throughout the city, like to highways or to the tops of buildings. Eventually, the city began what has today been called the clean train movement. Essentially, the actual moment a train car is touched with graffiti, it's taken out of service and cleaned. 
Seems like an obvious step, but in fact, what the city used to do is they only took the trains out of service if there was something truly offensive written on it. And if it didn't have a bad word on it, they basically left them in service until they were ready for the regular cleaning. What the city did in the late 1980s was the moment anything was written on it, they took it out of service. And this was a really great deterrent, honestly. Why paint on a train if then no one would ever see it? With all these factors in play, graffiti was greatly reduced in the city by the late 1980s, so much so, actually, that Koch, in kind of a victory lap near the end of his final term as mayor, proclaimed the city's subway fleet completely graffiti-free on May 12, 1989. And for the most part, the city still maintains a strict front against graffiti through the administration of Rudy Giuliani and today with Michael Bloomberg. A city organization called Graffiti Free NYC began in 1999, which takes a very aggressive, active role in combating graffiti. I mean, obviously, it's a constant battle, and you can walk down any street in New York today and see small amounts of tagging everywhere still. But for those artists thinking bigger, however, an intriguing option actually presented itself in Long Island City, Queens, in 1993, when a graffiti lover, Pat DeLillo, teamed with an actually well-known graffiti artist named Is The Wiz to open The Fun Factory, and that's P-H-U-N-P-H-A-C-T-O-R-Y, Fun Factory, a massive abandoned 200,000-square-foot warehouse at 4514 Davis Street, right off the 7 train, an entire block of building face that could be used by graffiti artists to go wild. Today, under new management, the space is known as Five Points, with a Z at the end, and frankly has become the most spectacular place, probably in the world, to see great original graffiti art pieces. It will totally blow your mind. It's a huge area with different kinds of pieces like in, surrounding you, from flat-out murals to these great colorful examples of the wild style. It's completely free to go in and walk around and appreciate the work. To participate, of course, you'll need to contact Five Points for a permit. Now, you can visit the Five Points website for more information, or you can visit our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I have some pictures of some of the work that's done at Five Points. If you're interested in more information on the graffiti movement, there are lots of wonderful books and websites on this. This is a very well-documented world, so I'll post some of my favorites up on the blog. You can also check us out on Facebook. Just type Bower Boys and become our friend there. So thanks for joining me on my short history on the world of subway graffiti. In two weeks, Tom and I will be back with another episode, going back a little ways for this for the next one. So looking forward to doing that. Thanks for joining me today. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.